Hello, and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that focuses on the lives and times of great historical figures that have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. In this episode, we look at a prince who wanted nothing more than to serve in the military, but wasn't allowed to in his native France. So Prince Eugene of Savoy found a new patron in the Holy Roman Empire, spent much of his career fighting against France, and wound up widely considered to be the greatest general in Imperial Austrian history. Maps and images for this episode can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. You can always reach me via email, almostforgottenpodcast at gmail.com, or on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is the last episode this season, so I first of all want to thank everyone who's been listening. Also, if you have a moment, please go on iTunes and rate the podcast. It only takes a minute or two, and it'll help bring attention to the show and bring new people along as I take a break to prepare material for the next season. This is episode 10, the last one of season 2, Prince Eugene of Savoy, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Prince Francois Eugene of Savoy was born October 18, 1663, in Paris. He was descended from Carlo Emmanuel I, who was the Duke of Savoy. Carlo's eldest son, Vittorio Amadeo, became Duke after Carlo's death in 1630, and was still in charge of Savoy when Eugene was born. One of Carlo's other children, Tommaso Francesco, married Marie de Bourbon, the daughter of the French Comte de Soissons, a prince of the blood. This union produced Eugene's father, who grew up in Versailles and became the Count of Soissons himself, a position of leadership in France. Although he was pretty distant from inheriting the kingship, he was part of the Bourbon family. He was a potential heir to the crown. Eugene's mother, Olympia Mancini, was, at least when he was born, one of the favorites of the French king, Louis XIV. She became deeply involved in the household of the young Louis XIV and also became involved in the intrigues in court. She, it seems, was the driving force behind getting her family then kicked out of Versailles, fleeing the court, as it were. This event seems to signify more of a loss of status than a true exile. When Eugene was 10 in 1673, his father died, but it was on the way to join with the forces of Turenne, the great French general. Olympia returned then to Paris, but by 1680, she found herself in true exile, although this time, it seemed to have been from a poor choice of friends, rather than anything she actually did. She fled to Flanders, the Spanish Netherlands, and set up in Brussels, where she became a magnet for high society. Eugene, as well as his siblings, stayed in Paris. One of his grandmothers, as well as his older brother, helped raise him. He was fascinated with the military and was an excellent student. He wasn't necessarily the most physically fit child, but he worked to make himself stronger and improve his endurance, something reminiscent of what was said about Teddy Roosevelt's childhood, although Eugene probably wasn't as sickly as the young Roosevelt. It must have been to his great disappointment when, at the age of 10, 
probably right around the time of the death of his father, that Eugene was informed King Louis had decided his role would be in the priesthood. He prepared himself dutifully, but continued to study military matters, with hopes that he might serve the only country he'd ever really known, France. In 1602, around the age of 18 or 19, the young priest-in-training approached the king, expressed gratitude for all that he had been given, but begged that he, being unworthy of such an honor, be allowed to serve in the military instead. Now, it's important to call out that by this point, his mother had fallen out of the king's favor and was living in Brussels. His eldest brother, Louis Thomas, the Count of Soissons now, had also angered Louis XIV. He had married a beautiful woman whose bloodlines knocked Louis Thomas out of the contention for the role of Duke of Savoy. Then she had the gall to refuse the king's advances, and it seems that the Soissons family had been thrown to the wolves, as it were, in court. Two of Eugene's other older brothers, Louis Julius and Emmanuel Philibert, had already seen the writing on the wall. Louis Julius fled to Vienna and offered his services to the Austrian court, while Emmanuel Philibert served under their cousin, the Duke of Savoy. Emmanuel Philibert died soon after, but Louis Julius was given a regimental command. Eugene, not one for inaction, realized he had no future, at least not one that was appealing to him, under Louis XIV, and he followed his brother to the court of Vienna. Now is probably a good time to talk a little bit more about these countries I keep mentioning. So let's do our tour of the world around the 1680s, give or take, when the young Eugene decided it was time to quit France. France was among the world's great powers, and its young king, Louis XIV, Louis XIV, the Sun King, was in the midst of leading it to perhaps its greatest pre-revolutionary height. To the east of France lay the Holy Roman Empire, steered by the will of the Kingdom of Austria and their Habsburg dynasty. The politics can be incredibly dense and complicated, but the King of Austria was also the King of the Germans, the Holy Roman Emperor. That doesn't mean the other kingdoms within the empire always did what he asked, which led to many problems. To add complexity, the German subject rulers of the Holy Roman Empire weren't the only internal dukes and princes the emperor had to cajole or browbeat to get anything done. Outside of the Holy Roman Empire, the Habsburg King of Austria also ruled over Hungary, acquired in 1526, and the Balkan states, at least the parts of these regions that the Ottoman Empire wasn't ruling. The Turks were in an era of revival, and the Ottoman Empire had reached its greatest territorial extent, which included control of, besides much of the Middle East, almost the entire Balkan Peninsula, from Buda in Hungary over to Podolia in western Ukraine, down through Greece. Rounding out Europe was a few other great powers. First, England, under James II, had recently come out of the English Civil War. The country was a major power, but James was soon ousted in favor of William of Orange. William was also the stadtholder of Orange Nassau, the leader of the Dutch Republic. These two countries would often act in concert after William's 1688 crowning. Spain and Portugal held significant territories over most of the New World, but weren't able to match their rivals in Europe. 
And then there were the smaller states that were destined to be fought over by the bigger ones. The Duchy of Savoy was a small state located in today's western Italy. Eugene's cousin, Victorio Amadeus II, ruled there. It was nominally part of the Holy Roman Empire, although like many northern Italian states, this relationship depended on the day of the week. Poland was no longer the power it had once been, although the Polish heavy cavalry, the Hussars, were perhaps the most feared military force in the world. Russia was a rising power, but Peter the Great's reign was just beginning. It would be a few decades before he made his reforms. The Safavid Empire ruled east of the Ottomans over Mesopotamia and Iran, and the Mughals were in charge of India. In China, the Manchu dynasty ruled, and the Tokugawa shogunate was the real power behind the marginalized emperor in Japan. In Southeast Asia, the Ayutthaya kingdom ruled much of today's Thailand, but the European powers had come and started colonizing the region, especially the Dutch. The Americas were still mostly the territory of the Spanish and the Portuguese, except for the north. The northeastern portion was being carved up by England and France. The northwestern part of the continent remained relatively isolated, with tribes like the Sioux and the Cheyenne living separate from the Europeans. Back in Europe, the Austrians were at a state of war when Eugene arrived in Vienna, although in the 17th and 18th centuries, it was probably less common for the Holy Roman Empire to be at peace. But this war threatened its very existence. Rebellious Hungarian noblemen had risen up and were pressing in from the east, with the specter of Turkish assistance looming. Eugene was welcomed by Leopold, the Holy Roman Emperor and King of the Austrians, just like his brother was. And the 20-year-old prince was sent to aid Charles, the Duke of Lorraine, who was leading the imperial army. Charles was the emperor's brother-in-law, a respected general, and was camped near Pressburg, modern-day Bratislava, the capital of Slovakia. By the time Eugene arrived, the sultan had indeed decided to abandon the most recent peace deal and had thrown in with the Hungarians asking for his help. The Ottomans pressed in with a massive army, and Lorraine's forces fell back until they were set upon on July 7, 1683. It was 20-year-old Eugene's first taste of battle, having grown up as a future priest. The Duke of Lorraine was able to mount a strong defense, but Eugene's brother Julius was badly wounded. He died a few days later. The Ottomans continued to push, and Lorraine led the army further back towards Vienna before heading east back towards Pressburg. There, they had a decisive victory over one of the Hungarian rebel leaders on July 28th, and soon had another victory against a rearguard contingent of the Ottoman army. But the Turks were now threatening Vienna itself, and had started to lay siege to the city, to the point that Emperor Leopold had to flee. By the end of August, Lorraine's army had rendezvoused with a Polish allied army, led by their king, John Sobieski. On September 7th, the United Army fell upon the Turks outside of Vienna, in the fields of Kallenberg, and routed them. The Great Battle of Vienna is described in more detail in Season 1, Episode 10, where the Allied Forces leader, Sobieski, is profiled. This famous battle, one that is often considered to have saved Eastern Europe, or at least Austria, from Ottoman conquest, 
was where Eugene was cutting his teeth. Not only did he see significant and furious action, he watched as Sobieski, Charles of Lorraine, as well as other highly regarded leaders like Louis of Baden and Max Emmanuel of Bavaria worked in concert as allies to defeat a common enemy rather than fall as rivals. Eugene was directly involved, under the command of Louis of Baden, in the follow-up action after Vienna as well. He fought at the Battles of Parkany, where the Turks killed many Polish cavalry before eventually being defeated a few days later. The winter came soon after, and the fighting stopped for the year, but not before Eugene was given a command of his own. He was named Colonel of the Dragoons of Kufstein, a group of men he would be in charge of come the next year. Dragoons, sort of the day's mobile infantry, were mounted soldiers who dismounted and formed up as infantry when it was time to fight. In 1684, the Holy League, as the alliance against the Turks was called, continued to see success. Since besieging Vienna, the Ottomans and their Hungarian allies had been in constant retreat as the imperial forces kept at them. The Duke of Lorraine, under whom Eugene was again serving, pushed down the Danube River to the city of Weizen, or Vats in Hungarian, an important fortress at the time. According to G.B. Mallison in his biography Prince Eugene of Savoy, quote, Lorraine met the Turks on the flat ground near this town and completely defeated them. Weizen at once surrendered, crossing and following the stream. Lorraine then marched to and encamped at Centendre. Here, he repulsed a resolute attack of the Turkish army. In this engagement, Eugene particularly distinguished himself. It was a charge made by him at the head of his regiment, which first broke the enemy, unquote. They then tried to take the city of Buda, as in Budapest, when a reinforcing Ottoman army arrived on July 22nd. Quote, Lorraine attacked this force as it approached the place and completely defeated it. In this action, Eugene distinguished himself in a manner to be mentioned by Lorraine in his report to the emperor, unquote. They weren't able to take Buda itself, but Eugene was proving himself an able commander. The following summer, in 1685, he was again commended by his superiors to the emperor, Louis, the Margrave of Baden, and another of the army's leading generals, and a cousin of Eugene, wrote that someday the prince would be considered a great leader of armies. His conduct in battle, as well as all them nice words, not to mention being a descendant of a Duke of Savoy as well as kings of France and Spain, was a pretty good resume builder for Eugene. By the end of 1685, he was promoted to major general in the Austrian army, although it should be noted he was like 22 years old and barely spoke any German. He had gone from being cast aside by Louis XIV, as well as, it seems, mocked by many in the French court for being effeminate while he was in Paris, to being a young military leader in the group that saved the Holy Roman Empire. In 1686, Eugene was given command of an army under Maximilian Emmanuel, ruler of Bavaria and Holy Roman Elector, another one of the most powerful men in the empire. Again, the Prince of Savoy would be besieging Buda. Eugene was wounded twice in battle that summer, but not badly enough to leave the army. The siege pressed on for months, and the Ottomans once again sent a relieving army, which was once again defeated. This time, Eugene was selected for the honor of delivering the news to the emperor, and he did this quickly, 
in time to return and participate in the final assault on Buda. They were able to capture it, taking a city that had been in Ottoman hands for nearly a century and a half. Eugene continued to serve with distinction in the battles on the frontier. In 1688, he fought in the siege of Belgrade. They breached the outside walls and stormed the city, where they fell upon a defensive ditch, with further walls beyond that. Eugene, along with Max Emanuel, rushed to the front of the line to try to will their men up the ditch and over the wall. The defenders finally broke, but Eugene was badly wounded, losing his helmet, possibly suffering a blow to the head, and taking a musket ball in the leg. He was taken to the back of the line, and nobody was sure how well he'd recover. It took three or four months, but by early 1689, he was fully recuperated. The Holy Roman Empire and its eastern allies had dealt handily with the rebellions and invasions from that direction. But Louis XIV saw this as an opportunity, and used some succession dispute in Cologne as a pretext for invasion. Preoccupied with Hungary and the Balkans, it took the Holy Roman Empire some time to respond to the French threat. The Palatinate, a region on the Upper Rhine, was quickly plundered by the French before any real response could be mustered. Leopold was able to secure alliances with other powers, especially England, Spain, and the Netherlands, as well as the Pope, against France. It drew almost all of Europe into what would be called the Nine Years' War, or King William's War here in the U.S. Eugene was sent to Turin to ensure the cooperation of his cousin, Duke Victor of Savoy. He then was sent to the Upper Rhine region to command an army under Max Emmanuel of Bavaria. There, he helped with the siege of Mainz and was again wounded, taking a musket ball to the head. This time, he must have not lost his helmet first because he recovered in time to storm the city. The following winter did not go so well for the Habsburgs, with losses in the Lower Rhine as well as the loss of the recently captured Belgrade. The Duke of Lorraine had been sent to lead the forces countering the French invasion, but he died of a fever that winter. It was around this time that Victor Amadeus II agreed to bring Savoy into the alliance. Eugene was sent to lead the imperial troops alongside his cousin in the budding Italian theater of the conflict. But leading troops that had a larger Spanish contingent than Austrian, Eugene did not believe there were enough men to counter the French forces in the area, led by the great Marshal Catena. Catena pulled up in an attempt to lure Duke Victor to leave a defensible position, acting as if he were going to attack a town that held many of the allied Piedmontese arms and supplies. It worked, and they engaged in a battle that saw a decisive French victory. Catena raised many of the towns of Savoy, but pulled back beyond the border to take winter quarters. The winter of 1690 to 1691 was difficult for Eugene. There was a peasant uprising, and he had to attack a supposedly allied town in Italy with his infantry in order to quell it. Then he went to Vienna to try to convince Leopold that there just weren't enough troops in northern Italy to make a difference against the French. He convinced Leopold to draw up 20,000 men, but these men would come from throughout the empire, and Eugene was not given command. Max Emmanuel, who Eugene had served under on several campaigns, took command, which was encouraging. The Spanish troops were also given a new commander, so they might actually participate in the fighting more willingly. 
The French, meanwhile, started the year with a string of successes and threatened Savoy's capital of Turin. Eugene was given command of resisting the siege, but Catinat bypassed the city. Eugene soon linked up with his reinforcements and went to try and relieve a different siege, but his presence was expected, and he found the French troops had abandoned their attempts to take the city. He waited with this larger imperial force that he now had, but was unable to attack, in part because his new Spanish commander seemed to have orders to play defense unless Milan was under threat. Max Emmanuel soon arrived as well, with 5,000 of his Bavarian troops, and now they numbered something on the order of 40,000 altogether. Eugene was ordered to besiege a town, which he did successfully, but the bulk of Max Emmanuel's army was indecisive and took no action. Eugene wanted to press Catanat's army, but Max Emmanuel was more careful, or was happy to watch him fall back towards France. By the end of 1691, the French watched happily as the majority of the Holy Roman army besieged a heavily fortified town that would likely not break, while Catana wheeled around and took more cities that were unprotected. At the beginning of 1692, Max Emmanuel was recalled from Italy, and command was given to Count Caprera, who was not nearly as well-regarded, intelligent, or talented. They did, however, now greatly outnumber the French in the region. They had some troops to keep an eye on Catanat, some to blockade the ports, and most of the army, to the approval of Eugene, set to invade France. He felt that attacking the French army under Catanat might result in a victory, but wouldn't accomplish anything because they wouldn't be able to take the major fortified cities he held. They were successful in their first foray, taking a city across the French border, but Duke Victor fell extremely ill, and they couldn't press the advantage. It didn't accomplish much either, and by the end of the year, Eugene was back in Vienna, trying to lay out a plan that might actually do something. He was mostly ignored, in part because there were more important fronts to the war, and he returned to Italy, although this time as a full field marshal under Caprara. The campaign of 1692 was indecisive, and it appeared the French were relatively inactive. Until Catana burst out of camp with reinforcements he had slowly been gathering and headed straight for Turin. All other sieges had to stop, and Duke Victor raced to try and stop the French army. Turin was, after all, the capital of Savoy. When the battle started outside of Turin, in the town of Marsaglia, Caprara was given the right wing and Eugene the center to command. By the end, both wings had collapsed, though Eugene's center had held, but now he was in danger of being outflanked and completely surrounded. He joined the retreat inside the walls of Turin. It was a decisive victory for the French, but they didn't have the forces to press the advantage and attack Turin itself immediately. The French were happy at this point to fall back on winter quarters behind the French border, and the army of the Grand Alliance was able to march out of Turin safely. This may have been because Duke Victor was secretly negotiating with Louis XIV to switch sides. He did not declare a change in sides, instead promising to simply delay and degrade the Allies' ability to fight. Eugene, on the other hand, was finally given full command of the Imperial Army, replacing Caprara. 
He began to lay out plans to retake cities and attack Katanat's forces. But his cousin seemed to stymie his efforts every step of the way. He began to suspect something, even possibly made accusations of some sort at a conference of the leadership. But Duke Victor played the aggrieved victim, protesting that, of course, no one was suffering more from France than he was, and he wanted their defeat more than anyone else. Eugene remained suspicious, so he did what he could without consulting Duke Victor. He took the city of Casal before turning on Pinarolo, one of the more fortified cities, which the French had held for years. Victor sent messages to the French detailing plans, and Eugene became convinced of the duplicity. From Mallison again, quote, Convinced now that his cousin was playing the part of a traitor, Eugene proceeded to Vienna to lay his proofs before the emperor. For a time, the professions of the Duke of Savoy lulled the suspicions which Eugene had roused in Vienna. Eugene then returned in June 1696 to Turin. But he had not been there many days before he wrote to Vienna his conviction that a secret, though unsigned, alliance did actually exist between Savoy and France. So closely did he question Victor Amadeus that the latter was forced at last to admit that it was so. Shortly afterwards, the 29th of August, the Duke of Savoy signed a treaty with the King of France, and on the 16th of September joined the French camp with his troops and took command of the Allied army, unquote. This action forced the Holy Roman Empire to pull their troops out of Italy, which would now be neutral. It also led to the Peace of Ryswick, signed in 1697, which ceased the hostilities between France and England and the Netherlands and Spain and everyone else. That same year, Eugene was sent back east by the Holy Roman Empire as war with the Turks had resumed. He arrived in the summer to find the Ottoman forces concentrated around Belgrade. They marched around in typical fashion of the 17th and 18th centuries, trying to reach high ground and easily fortifiable places first, attempting to quickly take and garrison cities, trying to gain any advantage before, or in lieu of, hurling 50 or 100,000 men at each other. Sultan Mustafa II was in command of the invading army himself, and Eugene correctly deduced that he was gunning for the city of Petrovaradin. Eugene got there with reinforcements first, and, after minor skirmishes and thwarted attempts to cross the river, the sultan decided a siege against such a large force was not advisable, considering it was already September. The Turks decided to march up the Tiza River to the city of Seged, and then go take Transylvania, one of the many regions that had suffered greatly in the game of back-and-forth conquests the regional powers played out over the last century or two. Eugene believed that he should attack at the next opportunity, rather than trying to reach Seged first and reinforce it. His army tailed the sultan's forces, and something happened which probably happened in these campaigns far more than we talk about. There was a small cavalry skirmish. During this one, though, a pasha, a commander of Turkish forces, who was sent out to lead some rearguard action, was captured. From this pasha, the Austrians learned that the invading army was in an extremely vulnerable position. The sultan had decided to skip out on taking Seged and head straight towards Transylvania. They were in the process of building bridges to cross the Tiza, and while the sultan and much of his cavalry had already made the crossing, 
The heavy artillery was in the long process of doing it themselves. The rest of the cavalry and the infantry remained on the near side, still digging entrenchments for protection. Eugene was quick to make a decision. He and a small escort rode ahead and saw for themselves this was what was happening. He waited for the rest of his army to come up, no doubt for probably what seemed like an impossibly long time. When they arrived, he began to bring the first army, of which he was the overall commander, forward to meet the enemy from a distance of about three miles near the town of Zenta. The Turks did not want the Austrians to attack at that moment, but they were battle-hardened and weren't sitting there completely unprepared. At first pestered by cavalry forces, eventually Eugene's army made his way to the Turkish camp. It was formed in a semicircle with the river at its back, and it began firing at the Holy Roman forces from the entrenched positions it had. Eugene spread his army's wings out to the river on each side, creating his own semicircle, perhaps thinning his line somewhat, but completely surrounding the enemy, other than the river and the bridge to their backs. He also spotted a sandbank at one flank that had been unguarded. It wasn't huge, but because the Turks were more concerned with the river crossing, they hadn't covered it. Eugene ordered his commander on that flank in, and elite Turkish janissaries came to defend the turf. The defense eventually wavered, and with that, it seems, so did the rest of the Turkish army. Eugene, commanding the center, found it to be faltering as well, and he was able to break through the lines. His forces collapsed on the encircled Turks, whose only escape was the bridge or the river. It was a complete rout. The Ottomans lost perhaps twenty to 30,000 men, maybe a third of them to drowning in the river. According to Mallison, quote, There were but few prisoners. Amongst the slain were the Grand Vizier and four other viziers, the governors of Asia Minor and of Bosnia, the Aga Vizier of the Janissaries, 13 Baylor Bays, and many Pashas. Some of these, it is said, were slain by the Janissaries in the fury of defeat, unquote. The Sultan could only watch from the other side of the river, unable to cross quickly enough to help, and eventually had to flee for his own safety, returning to Belgrade. The next day, the Holy Roman force crossed and took the hastily abandoned camp, which was filled with arms, horses, cattle, a significant amount of money, and to their surprise, some camels. Only about 300 Holy Roman troops had been killed in the entire assault. Eugene had acted quickly and decisively on the intelligence he was able to garner, and it was an unmitigated success for him. But both powers were in financial duress from the decades of warfare. Although Eugene spent the next month taking towns in the region, and the Ottomans were on their heels, he couldn't press the issue. And the next year, the Sultan called up more troops and fortified Belgrade. In the latter half of the 17th century, if the Battle of Vienna saved Central Europe from Ottoman domination, the Battle of Zenta ended any chance of Ottoman influence further southeast. With both empires weary of fighting, the war concluded officially in 1699 with the Treaty of Karlowitz. Eugene's place in history among the leading generals of the age secured, he retired to Vienna to a large estate gifted to him by the emperor. That respite lasted like a whole year before the Holy Roman Empire was once again plunged into war. 
the Spanish emperor Charles II, a Habsburg, and an ally of the Austrian Habsburg emperor, died in 1700 without an heir. Spain was not what it used to be, but it still controlled, besides the territory on the Iberian Peninsula, the Spanish Netherlands, today's Belgium, Sicily, Sardinia, and most of southern Italy. It was still kind of a big deal in these parts, and it was the largest landholder in the Americas by quite a bit. Louis XIV, ever the scheming schemer, had a scheme playing out. He persuaded Charles II to name, in secret, Louis's grandson, Philip, the Duke of Anjou, as his heir. A closely allied France and Spain, as well as their combined territories, flew in the face of the relatively new European concept of balance of power. And it was taken as a personal affront by King Leopold. After all, Spain was supposed to be a Habsburg holding. With perhaps some sympathy and cheering on from other European powers, but no actual alliances in place, Leopold dispatched Eugene to Italy to start a war over this Spanish succession. He'd have to go it alone, though. England and the Netherlands had already recognized the new Spanish king, now called Philip V. More troubling, though, was that Max Emmanuel of Bavaria, who had commanded forces for him on all the various fronts, had declared for the other side. He had familial claims to varying parts of the empire outside of Bavaria, and Louis had promised him whatever he could take in Germany. Really, though, he thought he had an opportunity to become the Holy Roman Emperor himself. The French had forces in northern Italy, this time being further to the east than the previous time Eugene was in Italy, closer to Venice. Catina returned to take command, doing his best to bar the mountain passes and make it difficult for the Austrians to even enter the region. Eugene did his best to deceive the French as to where he was actually moving, and he was able to cross via Mount Baldo on a difficult march that included having to demolish boulders on the way with explosives. But he did it, and by early June the entire Austrian force had made its way into Venetian territory. Eugene then moved around Italy in a manner that confused Catana, unsure of his aims, which allowed the empire to make some quick strikes and take the town of Castanaro and Carpi. But the two commanders spent much of the summer avoiding a pitched battle of full forces. Catana was then relieved of overall command by an inferior general, Francois de Neufville, Duc de Villois. Villeroy was certain he could take Eugene head-on due to his superior numbers, and that he would retreat if pressed. After months of limited engagement in early September, the French attacked the entrenched forces of the Holy Roman Empire at Chiari in Lombardy, 40 miles or so east of Milan. The fighting was fierce, but Eugene's men held firm. The French lost 2,000 men, as opposed to only a handful from the other side. Villeroy apparently froze up didn't have any additional commands after the fighting started, and eventually the Duke of Savoy and Catena, who was still there commanding some forces, had to order the retreat. Eugene spent the next month or two harrying the French and Spanish forces without ever moving the bulk of his army from their heavily fortified location. This harassment forced the French back to a more secure position, and the Austrians were able to wound Catena, who was commanding rearguard forces, sending him back to Versailles to recover. The Holy Roman forces continued to press on and took more Italian territory, campaigning into the winter. 
The successes allowed the princes and dukes in Italy, who were traditionally aligned with Vienna, to again declare their allegiance to Leopold. Other countries began to fall in with them. The Prussians, under Frederick the Great's father, provided troops, and in 1701, James II of England died. He was no longer king, he was the pretender to the English throne, as William of Orange had been king since 1688. Louis XIV, though, recognized his own son as the new king of England, which brought England into the alliance, as well as Holland. In January of 1702, Eugene called his commanders together and announced that he planned to attack the fortified castle of Cremona, which was Villeroy's headquarters. They learned of an unused canal which some soldiers could use to sneak into the city. They rushed in and were able to snag Villeroy, but due to heavy rains, not all of Eugene's forces, which he had separated, were able to reach their designated places in time. The Austrians and their allies were driven out of the city, unable to capture it. Worse for them, though, was in capturing Villeroy, the French needed a new commander, and brought in Louis-Joseph de Bourbon, Duke de Vendôme a skilled and competent general. The French then reinforced the area and had something like 80,000 troops to Eugene's almost 30,000. Eugene again took up an entrenched, defensible position and waited. Vendôme proceeded to take back Italian territory as the Holy Roman forces just weren't numerous enough to engage directly. Late in the summer, though, Philip V, King of Spain, arrived with forces to try and finally kick the imperialists out of Italy. It gave Vendôme enough men to divide his forces, try to get Eugene to chase him, and then surround him. Eugene suspected this, but he felt that if he could get at one of these groups, he could defeat it. He sent some smaller contingents out to do reconnaissance, and instead they engaged in a fight which ended in a deadly and disorganized retreat but it is possible that that was a diversion, because the next thing Vendôme knew, Eugene was no longer in his entrenched position, but instead right upon him, outside the town of Luzara. A major engagement ensued, in which one of Eugene's senior commanders, Prince Commercy, was killed. Eugene again performed brilliantly in the battle, reinforcing this group when it was faltering, and then leading the fourth, and finally successful, charge of the right wing of his army himself. The French retreated, in an orderly fashion, to their camp, although conditions were not favorable for the Austrians and their allies to storm it, so they dug in and awaited the next day's action. The armies didn't really engage each other after that point. They just spent a few months staring each other down before Vendôme was unable to wait any longer and fell back to winter quarters. Eugene wrote back to the emperor that he had outlasted the French general. 1703 brought Savoy back into the alliance, but it also brought troubles back east as revolt swept again through Hungary, and the generals there were ineffective. Eugene was sent there, but was more often bogged down and unable to gain much than anything else. Without Eugene's presence, Italy was starting to go in favor of the French as well. By January of 1704, more pressing matters pulled Eugene back west. This time it was not to Italy, but to Vienna, to face a French and Bavarian army that was threatening the capital itself. Max Emanuel's army was in southern Germany, while other French armies were on the Rhine, and Eugene thought France's aim would be to join these two up. Only Duke Louis of Baden's troops stood in between them. 
Eugene also knew he had a powerful ally fighting in the Netherlands who could help, in the form of the Anglo-Dutch army, commanded by John Churchill, the Duke of Marlborough. As the French on the Rhine began moving east in May, Eugene's hunch was right, and his letters to Marlborough proved crucial because the English general moved quickly south into the Rhineland. Marlborough's march there was taking a great risk, as the French could have then concentrated all their forces on the Netherlands. It is also, though, considered a masterpiece, and by feigning that he was moving to attack France from further south, Marlborough kept them guessing at his intentions as he marched. He successfully met up with Eugene in June, and Louis of Baden as well, and they discussed plans. The French forces coming from the west were too strong to stop from linking up with the Bavarians, which they did in early August. Eugene placed himself under the command of Marlborough, while Duke Louis went to besiege a town. Perhaps seeing several obstinate generals squabble over power and honors as a young officer soon after the Battle of Vienna influenced Eugene into happily accepting a subordinate role to the English commander, who he now considered a friend. Eugene stayed in the English camp for a couple of days as the two worked out their plans, before he was able to return and link up his own troops with Marlborough's. A week after the French and Bavarians linked up, the Holy Roman and English forces were together, and they were all within striking distance of each other. Their enemies had maybe 60,000 men to their 50,000, but the English and Bavarians were divided, both in leadership and in geography. Marchand, one of the French generals, was in the town of Blenheim with most of his troops. Max Emmanuel's troops were in a village nearby, and they were both in strong defensible positions. In between the two lay a stretch of land that wasn't quite as well defended, but was held by cavalry. Thanks to a morning mist on August 13th, the Austro-Anglo-Dutch-Prussio-Danish-Etc. army was able to approach without being detected early, and the French and Bavarians were surprised by the attack a few hours later. Both the French and the English generals believed Blenheim was the key to the battle, and Marlborough hurled his forces against the French in the heavily defended town. Eugene attacked the combined Bavarian and French forces further west, keeping them from reinforcing Blenheim. Despite heavy fighting and significant losses on both sides, they weren't able to take the town, and Eugene wasn't in place with his troops until around noon, bogged down by slow progress in his march to the western portion of the battlefield. The French, seeing the attack on Blenheim, concentrated forces there, but they were packed in too tight to take advantage of their superior numbers. With the bulk of the rest of the infantry under attack in the town of Oberglohheim a few miles away, Marlborough detected an opening. The line connecting the two towns wasn't supported enough, so he pushed there. He kept Blenheim tied up with enough forces to convince the French to keep all their men there, but concentrated his own forces, as well as some he requested from Eugene, on the center. Marlborough took the center, and as the French forces were decimated there, the French Marshal Tallard sent for aid from his left wing. But they were being attacked in wave after wave by Eugene, and couldn't do a thing to help. Tallard, in an effort to go to Blenheim himself to organize the defense, was captured. Eugene's forces then overran the left wing of the French, and all that was left was to take Blenheim itself. As the Allied forces advanced, the French knew it was over and soon surrendered. 
It was a massive victory for the Grand Alliance. They had more than 10,000 casualties, including those killed or wounded, but the French had maybe twice as many, counting those who drowned fleeing the battle, and more than 10,000 more French were captured. Vienna was again saved. The Battle of Blenheim turned France's strategy from offensive to defensive, essentially for the remainder of the war. A French army had been utterly destroyed, and the Bavarian troops that remained were leaderless. Max Emmanuel refused an offer from Eugene and Marlborough to retain his lands in exchange for his allegiance, and instead fled to Brussels. Eugene spent the remainder of 1704 cleaning up the region, unable to attack France as Marlborough was attempting to do, thanks to a lack of his own forces once the generals went their separate ways. Despite his success to the west, things were not going well for the empire elsewhere, and Eugene was dispatched in 1705 to Italy, probably chosen over Hungary because the French had been more formidable foes. So, with fewer troops, he spent much of 1705 trying to outmaneuver Vendôme and the French. He forced one large battle when Vendôme's inept brother was in charge of 10,000 men. But Vendôme surmised what was happening and rushed there himself in time to take command. This resulted in the Battle of Cassano, one of the bloodiest fights of the entire war, in which no side gained much from it. That same year, the Emperor Leopold died and was succeeded by his son, Emperor Joseph I. Eugene hadn't accomplished much in Italy although he kept things from getting too much worse. Over the winter, he rushed back to Vienna to try to get more troops and money for his beleaguered force. Eugene returned to Italy in time to catch his troops retreating from French attacks. He was able to check the route, but he was still facing Vendôme's large force. Meanwhile, Turin, the capital of Savoy, where Duke Victor was holed up, was in France's sights and Eugene knew he had to go relieve it. Eugene, stuck in Tyrol, was far from Turin, but things began to move in favor of the Allies. Marlborough defeated a large French army in Ramilles in the Spanish Netherlands, and Philip V had been repulsed trying to take Barcelona. The Venetians began quietly supporting the Austrians, and reinforcements finally began showing up. He outmaneuvered the French with feints and quick marches, and made his way across northern Italy. In a scene reminiscent of Marlborough's quick march before Blenheim, Eugene's march is considered one of his more brilliant campaigns. Vendôme had been dispatched to the Netherlands, and he was replaced by the Duke of Orléans, another able commander. But the change in command helped give Eugene the time he needed, and he slipped further west, taking towns when he could, with a larger army on his tail, as well as a larger army in front of him, attacking Turin. In late August of 1706, he met up with the Duke of Savoy, who had escaped the siege and reported that the city had just repulsed an attack that morning. Together with Victor Amadeus and his cavalry, Eugene and his army reached a hill outside of Turin and examined the invading French army. Seeing disarray, not necessarily chaos, but the lack of the kind of order a real plan would have indicated, he turned to his cousin Victor and said, It seems these men are half beaten. On September 7th, Eugene led his army in relief of Turin. According to Kenneth P. Check in an article in Military History magazine, Eugene was in the middle of it all. Quote, 
At critical moments in the battle, he displayed an icy calm that inspired his troops. Yet, when needed, he would rage at his men and at the enemy. Eugene was possessed with a sort of warlike fury, observed one of his officers. His eyes lighted up. He rushed hither and thither, raging. He shrieked curses and encouragement, yelling and harking his bloody war dogs on, unquote. The French tried to turn their guns away from Turin to face the Austrians, but the Allies were able to take them on the right wing. The French began to retreat, and the soldiers inside Turin poured out. In addition to the 10,000 men defending Turin with the Duke of Savoy, Eugene brought about 30,000 men. With this, he defeated the combined French force of over 50,000. The battle was decisive, and the siege was lifted, and the Duc d'Orléans decided the only course was to retreat behind the borders of France. It, similar to Blenheim up north, essentially ended the French designs for Italy. Eugene spent the rest of the year recovering the duchy for his cousin and kicking out the French and Spanish troops that were left. By 1707, he was named Field Marshal of the Empire, the leading general subordinate only to the emperor. He was also named Governor of Milan, a newly captured territory. The emperor then sent him to invade France in the south, although Eugene wanted to link up with Marlborough in the north and prosecute the war there. The Mediterranean port of Toulon was his aim, and he led an army along the French coast until he reached the city, which he thought impregnable upon seeing the defenses. Nonetheless, he was told to press on before repulsed attacks and the arrival of a French fleet finally forced him to retreat. A successful retreat, however, helped burnish his reputation. In 1708, Eugene was finally able to go up to the Low Countries and link up with Marlborough. Much of the heaviest fighting in the war had occurred in this region, although after Romilly's in 1706, 1707 wasn't as good for the Allies, and Marlborough suffered some defeats. Together, though, Marlborough and Eugene defeated the French in 1708 at Udenarde in the Spanish Netherlands. With about 100,000 troops per side, by the end of the day, Marlborough's strategy had nearly completed a double envelopment of the French. But the French were able to barely get away as daylight ran out, although they still lost something like 15,000 men between those who were killed, wounded, and captured. The two pals finished the year with a five-month siege of Lille, which Eugene led for the most part, while Marlborough kept the French from attacking the besieging army. Eugene suffered another wound, this time a bullet to the head, but it only grazed him, and after a few days he was back in action. They finally took the city after the loss of many lives, dealing a significant blow to France's position in the region. By the end of 1708, thanks to Marlborough's strategy at Udenarde and Eugene's effective work throughout the campaign, the French were effectively booted out of the Spanish Netherlands. They tried to force their way into France the following year, and spent much of the summer besieging and eventually taking the city of Tournai, where Clovis was born. Marlborough got the assignment this time, and Eugene covered his back, although the city was eventually surrendered to prevent starvation rather than after an all-out assault. On the 11th of September, 1708, Eugene and Marlborough met the French army which was chasing them, trying to engage before they took any more cities in France. They found each other outside the village of Malplaquet, 
and Eugene commanded the right wing of the army. After continuing to beat back Allied advances and pushing back Eugene's forces, the French commander Villar was wounded. Eugene saw the attack falter after this and pressed the advantage. His right wing, as well as the rest of the army of the Grand Alliance, advanced and continued to advance on the French the rest of the day. Eventually, the French retreated after heavy casualties and the Allies took the field. But the Allied forces suffered nearly twice as many casualties. It was the bloodiest battle in the entire 18th century and is considered a Pyrrhic victory more than any great strategic one. It is said that Villar reported to Louis XIV after the battle that if France's enemies had another victory like that one, then the Grand Alliance would be ruined. After this, the war really began to ground to a halt. Louis XIV was tired of losing to Marlborough and Eugene. The Dutch were tired of fighting. England, now the United Kingdom, was also weary of the war. The German princes weren't about to continue fighting to crush the French, as most of the spoils would go to the Austrians. And then, the Holy Roman Emperor died, and the Grand Alliance faltered because, as Malison put it, it changed fundamentally the conditions of the contest. That's because the Austrian-born Habsburg, who was trying to secure the throne of Spain, Charles, was next in line to be Holy Roman Emperor. But the other allies had been fighting to stop the Bourbons from controlling France and Spain and essentially uniting the two. Now the Holy Roman Empire would be trying to swallow up Spain itself. Charles, though, didn't want to leave Spain, where he had been fighting for the crown for a decade, and he desperately wanted the war to continue. And so Eugene was sent out to fight again, this time to try to defend German cities from attacks by Max Emanuel and other potential usurpers. Then, in early 1712, to London to try to convince them to send Marlborough back out to fight. He had been recalled as their enthusiasm for the war waned. He was successful at defending the Holy Roman territories, but not at getting his buddy back on the field. Eugene still had forces on the French border to lead, even without Marlborough, and had opportunities to attack, but was stymied by Allied inaction. The new English commander had been ordered to avoid battle, and the United Kingdom was soon out of the war. Eugene and his remaining Dutch allies fought the French at the Battle of Denain in July, and they were defeated. The Dutch were outnumbered on their line, and Eugene failed to reinforce them. Perhaps 2,000 Allied soldiers were killed or wounded. The French had a similar number, but 4,000 Dutch were captured, and Eugene was forced to withdraw. The Dutch were now beginning to negotiate, and what was a loss for the Allies turned into a decisive victory for the French. Unable to use his Dutch forces for attack, and having to receive approval from the Dutch stadtholders before taking any significant action, Eugene was purely on the defensive. The French general Villar ran a brilliant campaign that year, and Eugene spent the days after Denain mostly watching the alliance weaken and having to withdraw forces. In 1713, France signed the Treaty of Utrecht, ending hostilities with England, the Netherlands, Savoy, even Prussia, one of the states of the Holy Roman Empire. Austria and Charles VI remained in the war. Holy Roman states began demanding the withdrawal of their troops. As the war wound down elsewhere, Eugene remained engaged north of France with fewer and fewer troops, while the French were able to pour resources into that front. 
With the writing on the wall, the Holy Roman Emperor finally acquiesced, and the Treaty of Baden was signed as a result, ending hostilities. Among the territories that changed hands, the Spanish Netherlands, today's Belgium, became the Austrian Netherlands. This was mostly to keep it out of French hands. The Austrians didn't particularly want the territory. The Dutch ended up mostly garrisoning the towns. But Eugene was given the title of Governor General of the Austrian Netherlands. It would remain under Austrian control until they ceded it to Napoleon in the Treaty of Campo Formia. Eugene, though, did not retire to a life of relative peace governing this new territory. Instead, the Turks were resurgent, having just defeated the Russians in a major battle, and he was sent to deal with the inevitable invasion of Hungary. In the 1699 Peace of Karlowitz, the Ottomans had to vacate the Peloponnese in Greece, and they attacked Venice in order to get it back from the fading sea power. In order to check Turkish expansion, Vienna signed an alliance with Venice in 1716, to which Istanbul responded that there were no provisions for defending Venice in the Treaty of Karlowitz, so if the Austrians went to war over it, it would be the Habsburgs breaking the peace, not the Sultan. Eugene marched his forces down to the Balkans and met up with the Allied troops from the Kingdom of Croatia as well as Hungarian forces. They fortified the city of Petrovardin, where Eugene had waited before his great victory at Zenta. The Ottomans brought a huge army and asked Eugene to surrender. They outnumbered the Allied forces close to two to one, and Eugene had something like 80,000 men under his command. Obviously, he wasn't going to do that, but he also didn't want to wait out a siege, try to exhaust the Turks, and then attack. He wanted to attack immediately, despite the enemy's numerical advantage. He was able to ferry his troops across the Danube under the cover of night, and on August 5th, he marched his troops out for battle. The Ottomans were driven back. Then they recovered. Their left buckled, but their center pressed forward. The Turkish cavalry, the Sipahis, engaged repeatedly with the Austrian and Hungarian cavalry, but eventually retreated. This exposed the advancing Turkish center's flank on the right, and Eugene spotted it. He pushed his infantry into the flank, by Malison's account, Eugene responded, quote, Strengthening Alexander of Wartenberg with all the infantry he could spare, he directed him to wheel to his right and take the exposed Turkish center in flank, whilst with his retired center he should renew the attack in front. The Janissaries, assailed simultaneously in front and in flank, fell back to their entrenchments. Vainly did they look for the Sapahis to effect a diversion, unquote. But the Sapahis, chased by the Austrian and Hungarian heavy cavalry, were in flight, and the Janissaries knew, too, that the battle was lost at that point. The Grand Vizier bravely tried to rally his forces, but he was killed, and Eugene had won the day. The Austrians had lost around 3,000 men, the Turks twice as many, maybe more. But it was a devastating blow to Turkish efforts, and Eugene followed this up, with a bloody but successful siege at Timosuara in today's Romania, taking a regional capital that had been in Ottoman possession since 1552. By the time 1717 came, Eugene was ready to press his advantage. This time it was he who led the massive force to try to take the heavily fortified Belgrade. 
He had nearly 100,000 troops to the defenders' 30,000, but he was informed a massive relief army was coming. So, in a move reminiscent of Julius Caesar against Vercingetorix, he entrenched the rear of his army as well to prevent attack from behind. Eugene didn't wait for the fight to come from this Turkish relief army. He launched a night attack and surprised them, using almost all of his troops, leaving only enough to defend against sallies from Belgrade's fortress behind him. But the mists and darkness had allowed some Turkish forces to outflank the Austrian center, and there was danger of a rout. The Ottomans, perhaps not yet fully realizing their position, didn't immediately take advantage. The mists cleared. Eugene saw what danger his force was in and rushed in himself to stop it. He was able to reach an infantry battalion in time to turn them and stop the certain destruction of his center. He later led a cavalry charge that helped to drive the Ottomans from the field. With the relief army in flight, the besieged in Belgrade quickly offered surrender in exchange for safe passage, which Eugene gladly gave. Within a year, a peace deal was signed. Emperor Charles VI was happy to sign the Treaty of Pesarowitz because the former pretender to the Spanish throne was still trying to fight Spain over in northern Italy, and this was distracting him from it. The Habsburgs were able to solidify their Hungarian holdings and extend their rule further south and east into today's Romania, as well as making a vassal state out of the Kingdom of Serbia. Returning home to Vienna, Eugene worked as a military advisor to Emperor Charles VI. But he wasn't interested in the war in Italy, and he was wary of removing troops from the Balkans to fight the Spanish. He didn't lead forces in Italy in person. Some sources say this is because he wasn't asked, others because he didn't want to do it. But he also had a difficult relationship with the Spanish advisors of Charles, who the emperor admired so much as he was said to be more desirous of being king of Spain than Holy Roman Emperor. Eugene was, through intrigues as well as his own lack of enthusiasm for the current situation, sidelined as the leading military advisor to the emperor. He also soon resigned his governorship of the Austrian Netherlands, after a little under a decade of absentee leadership. Eugene took to his books, of which he was an avid collector, and he remained in Vienna. He helped oversee the construction of his own winter palace there, as well as two Baroque palaces, now known as the Belvedere. The Winter Palace and the Belvedere are less than two miles apart. Today, the Belvedere is a museum, while the Winter Palace, also a Baroque masterpiece, houses the Austrian Ministry of Finance. He eventually returned to the Emperor's good graces, and when the King of Poland died in 1733, sparking yet another succession war between Austria and France, well, France attacked. Despite Eugene's frequent protestations to keep the military properly funded, there was little money and few troops. The United Kingdom and the Netherlands remained neutral, and Austria was isolated. France took towns in Italy. It was all Vienna could do to send Eugene to defend the Rhine. He fought a purely defensive campaign in western Germany. Although reinforcements did help keep Eugene and the Austrians from being completely steamrolled, Besides Hessian troops, Eugene also received, along with Prussian forces, their crown prince as well as their king. 
This Prussian prince wound up being known as Frederick the Great, and he considered his time studying under Eugene incredibly valuable. The French easily took territory in the Rhineland before threatening the fortress of Philipsburg. The siege was underway when Eugene approached with a now-reinforced army. It was big enough to attack, and many say a younger Eugene probably would have attacked. But he was now in his 70s. Not only did he not have the seasoned troops he felt he needed to properly prosecute the war, he didn't have the personal strength. Despite French difficulties, including the death of their commander, he withdrew rather than attacked, and the city had to surrender in July of 1734. Realizing that the city of Mainz was now under threat, Eugene moved his army in that direction. He was still skilled at this, and he confused the French enough to keep them away. There was no engagement of the armies, though, and the winter came with no more major battles in the Rhineland. In 1735, he returned to the region, but the French were now interested in peace. The Russians sent troops to help reinforce the Holy Roman troops in western Germany, and France was hoping to consolidate gains. Well, the Austrians had little opportunity for things to get much better. A peace was reached. Eugene helped with the negotiations. The treaty wasn't signed until 1738, but that was due to delays needed to make territorial exchanges. Fighting ceased in 1735, and soon after, Eugene died. He was in Vienna at the house of his close friend, Countess Bathiani. He felt more ill than usual, and at this point he was physically diminished, and he retired to his winter palace. He went to bed and was found dead the next morning by his servants. He was 72 years old and had served the Austrian court and the Holy Roman Empire for over 50 years, since Louis XIV made it clear he had no military future in his native France. He left quite a legacy, much of it fighting against Louis. He didn't have any children that we know of. Many surmise from comments about his early life that he may have been gay. But he also seems to have spent the last 20 or so years of his life involved possibly romantically, with Countess Bathiani. But he had no heirs, at least no legitimate ones, and his estates passed on eventually to the government, which is part of the reason why they are a museum and a government building today. He had quite a few brilliant moments, including Turin and Zenta. Napoleon called him one of the seven greatest military commanders in history. Frederick the Great was critical of him at first, but later said he owed his understanding of viewing overall strategy rather than immediate objectives to Eugene. As a boy, he saw there was no future outside of the church in his native France and was dismissed by Louis XIV. He spent the rest of his life fighting for and defending France's great rival of the era, and by the time he died, he was Austria's greatest general. I could finish with another quote from Malison, who I've quoted throughout this. But instead, I'll close with the more familiar Winston Churchill, who wrote about Eugene in his biography of his ancestor, John Churchill, the Duke of Marlborough. Quote, From the age of 20, for just over 50 years, and in more than 30 campaigns, he commanded the armies and fought the battles of Austria on all the fronts of the empire. When he was not fighting the French, he was fighting the Turks. A colonel at 20, a major general at 21, he was made a general of cavalry at 26. He was commander-in-chief 10 years before Marlborough, 
he was still a commander-in-chief, fighting always in the van, more than 20 years after Marlborough's work was done. At the end of his life, of innumerable and almost unceasing perils, toils, checks, and triumphs, his skinny body scarred with many wounds, he could still revel in his military duties. He never married, and although he was a discerning patron of art, his only passion was warfare. His decisive victory over the Turks at Zenta in 1697 made him, at this moment in our story, the most renowned commander in Europe. Unquote. Well, that'll just about do it for season two. I want to thank everyone for sticking with me. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed putting this together and learning about everybody. If you have any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to reach out via the website, email, or Twitter. And one last time this season, if you haven't left a comment on iTunes yet, please do so. I'm off to take a little break before finding some new subjects and starting to write scripts for next season. I hope to start up posting episodes again at the beginning of next year, so please stay tuned. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>